Well, I want to jump this morning from Matthew 13 to Matthew 24. This is called the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. We'll just look at it today in terms of an introduction in the first three verses. We won't really get into the, the prophecy of it this week. But when we use the term discourse, it's just a word that is used by Bible teachers to indicate it was Jesus teaching a lesson. It's instruction. Or you might say it's a sermon. It's him giving information. Uh, that's what Matthew 24 and 25 is all about. Him speaking, the disciples listening, and then it was recorded in Scripture. Now Jesus spoke the Olivet Discourse to his disciples in private. In other words, only to his disciples. We know four that were there. Four are named, but there may have been the other twelve as well. Uh, it's quite possible the four were, the four, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, I think it was, proposed the questions that we're going to entertain this morning or get started on. And the others probably, you know, were just standing around listening. <clears throat> so he spoke the Olivet Discourse to his disciples in private while on the Mount of Olives. That's how, where we get Olivet. Sometimes you hear it called Mount Olivet. The Olivet Discourse picks up that name because he spoke it from the Mount of Olives, which is opposite the Eastern Gate and the Temple Mount. They would have been here, the Mount of Olives, looking straight across the Kindred Valley to the Eastern Gate up here and the Temple proper right here. Uh, that's a very majestic sight, by the way. Uh, I've had the privilege of standing on the Mount of Olives on a bright sunny day looking straight across at the Temple Mount. And it's, it's just very impressive even today. And there's no temple standing there today. Just a temple, uh, a space where the temple was. But you have the, the city skyline of the modern city behind back here and then the old walls and everything. It's, uh, it's a beautiful sight. Now the reason they were on the Mount of Olives here is because they were staying in Bethany, which is back in here off the map, and they traveled down this way and over and up and into the temple. And that they did, and spent the day there in the temple, and then they departed back out the Eastern Gate, but I'm not sure this route to Bethany might have proceeded back this way, but they, they go for a distance and they stop somewhere here on the Mount of Olives and uh, to take a rest, whatever, and they're looking back at the temple where they had spent their day. And that's where the questions come up that are dealt with here in Matthew 24. Now here's a view from the Mount of Olives of the Temple Mount today that I was just describing. Now here's the uh, Islamic shrine, the Dome of the Rock it's called. That was not there in Jesus' day. Here's where the temple would have sat right in here, between here and the Eastern Gate over here. Temple would have sat there. Of course, that skyline would not have been there back in those days. The Mount of Olives down here, and you're looking across like this. And I'm going to stop at this point before I give you any more context and talk about Matthew. 
I don't know why. I mean, mostly when you talk about the author of the book of Matthew, we just, well, it's just Matthew. But stop and think. What do we know about Matthew? <coughs> not much. He's not a prominent disciple in the scripture. Why did Jesus choose Matthew to record the first gospel, the basic gospel, which the others are built? Uh, the gospel that contains the most prophecy that we have that Jesus gave. Well, I got to think about that this past week when I had a lot of time to just sit around and think about stuff. So, uh, it intrigued me. And the more that I thought about it and uh, began to do some uh, study on it, I thought it was something we could talk about this morning because I think it is important. Matthew, of course, wrote the book of Matthew, and he was a tax collector. According to Matthew 9, 9 to 13, also you see it over in the book of Mark, and even Luke, he was a tax collector. He was Jewish. Uh, his father's name is given in Luke, I believe. And uh, he had an alternate name he went by, it was Levi. So, <clears throat> typical Jewish man, selected to be a disciple. Now, Jesus came to him as he was sitting at the tax collector's booth, whatever that was, table, chair, whatever, where people had to come by and pay their taxes. And Jesus said, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Now that sounds like, well, that's pretty abrupt, but I think that, and I think that uh, simply indicates that Matthew had come to be a believer in Jesus before Jesus ever called him to be a disciple. Because Jesus had been preaching, teaching, and healing in that whole area. And uh, he had probably been there and witnessed some of the things Jesus said, some of the miracles that he did, but never had any thought that you know, Jesus was going to call him to be one of his disciples, of course, until that day. Well, tax collectors were traitors. As far as the average Jew was concerned, a traitor because they worked for Rome. They collect taxes not for the temple. That was this whole separate issue whole separate taxation system than Judaism. But they worked for Rome. The enemies, those that had subjugated them and occupied their country. And the Romans just said, you know, you're going to pay this much taxes and that's it. You either pay your taxes or they, you know, disposed of you. But obviously, they don't have enough Roman soldiers to keep tabs on every Jew that needs to pay taxes. This is just something they did all across the Roman Empire. So they take locals, they put them in the position of a tax collector, and they keep tabs on everybody that should be paying taxes, make sure they pay their amount, and more. Because tax collectors weren't paid by the Rome. They got their cut by however much more they could collect than was owed Rome. And this obviously created a lot of resentment. Working for the enemy, lining their own pockets, getting rich off of their own people. Tax collectors were hated. They were legal extortioners working for the Romans. That's what Zacchaeus was, remember? Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, jabbed down in the Jericho area, or thereabouts. Jesus, his disciples come to Jericho. And Zacchaeus, uh, he can't get through the crowd. He wants to, he's heard of Jesus and all the rest. He's interested. 
If he can't get through the crowd for whatever reason, I think part of the reason was they probably were not about to let him through because they didn't accept him at all. He was just a traitor to them. And of course he was small in stature, he climbed up in the tree, and Jesus passing by points him out, and Jesus invites himself to go to his house. Now that's, that's tremendously significant. It sounds very rude in modern day terms. You know, I don't just come up to Matthew and say, Matthew, I want you to fix me dinner tonight. And I just, you don't do that. But you've got to understand, Jesus was Jewish. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And no Jew would be caught dead in a tax collector's house. That was a statement of, you know, I accept you as a brother, at least nationally speaking. Uh, that was a, something that took Zacchaeus back. Sure. Well, as I've already mentioned, tax collectors were excluded from fellowship with other Jews. They weren't allowed to go to the synagogues and worship. They just didn't let them in. They didn't let them in the temple to bring a sacrifice or anything. They were just persona non grata. Remember Luke chapter 18, the, the parable of not a parable, really. This is the account of the um, tax collector and uh, the Pharisee. Mm -hmm. The Pharisee, he's somewhere in, in the temple confines, and he's standing on the corner praying, Lord, thank you I'm not like uh, these evil people. I'm, thank you I'm not like tax collectors, and I, you know, I tithe, and I do these things that I should. That wasn't a prayer. That was a some sort of you know, personal praise, I guess you would say. But that he was praying and thanking God that he was so good and not like this tax collector over here. And in, in, in Luke 18, it says, and the tax collector was standing far off. Why? He wasn't allowed in. <coughs> he was probably out there in the gate of the Gentile, or the court of the Gentiles. He wasn't even considered worthy to come into the, the Jewish part of the temple proper. And what does the tax collector do? He beats on his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, he went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. <coughs> now, of course, when, when Matthew answered the call that Jesus gave, he prepared a banquet in his house. This is over, uh, I figure out where that's at. It's either in Luke or Mark, uh, in, in more detail, but it's also in Matthew. But he invited all of his tax collector buddies to come over to the house and meet Jesus. He wanted them to hear about this man, and, uh, about his saving grace and so forth. And then, of course, who complained about it? The Pharisees and the other Jews complained about the whole thing. And Jesus made that famous statement, you know, I'm not come to... To help those that are well, I've come to help those that are sick. So this just gives you a little bit of uh, idea about who a tax collector was. They were hated by the Jewish people, maybe more than they hated the Romans. Now, as far as Matthew himself, once he became a disciple, there is not one single comment in either of the four, of any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, not one comment recorded that he ever said, not one word that he ever spoke that's in there. 
Not one question that he ever asked. No interaction at all is recorded. That doesn't mean he didn't ask questions, he didn't speak, he didn't interact with Jesus, but it's just not there. Now, this is kind of speculation, but I think it is something worth thinking about. Do you imagine that the other disciples said, Oh, wonderful, Jesus, now we've got a tax collector! <laughs> very seriously if that would have been their thought. They're Jews too. They've been abused by the tax collectors. They probably accepted him on the surface, maybe, but no. He's here. Probably treated him okay. But I can imagine they probably kept an eye on Matthew over here, you know? Uh, I'm not sure Matthew would have been fully accepted in his own heart and mind just, just because of the fact that he had been a tax collector. He had to feel like an extreme measure of guilt. He had to have had thoughts like, why am I worthy to be Jesus' disciple? That would kind of lead you to just be quiet. Just, I'll do what I'm here, I'll do what you tell me to do, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm, not kind of, I'm not in my mind in a class with these other guys. After all, his, his very life as a tax collector basically denied the hope of the Messianic kingdom. If you're going to get rich at the expense of your fellow Jews in a time of trouble, you're not thinking about the Messiah is going to come and this is all going to be taken care of. So here's the question I ask myself. Why did Jesus choose Matthew? Well, there's two things that are just so apparent here. Number one, Matthew may have been a tax collector, but he knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. We know that from reading the book of Matthew. Every prophecy that Jesus fulfilled, he gives you the, goes back to the Old Testament, gives you the very verse, the place, and he explains it. Uh, he had a knowledge level of a Levite or a priest, probably, in his understanding of the Old Testament. The common man would not have had that kind of intricate knowledge of the Old Testament. Don't know why. He didn't have any formal training we know of. He must have, he must have gotten this at home as a child, uh, being brought up. But Jesus chose the man who evidently was most equipped in that group of 12 to understand the whole scope of what it meant that Matthew, the gospel here, that he was given to write, was the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the vital connection. And beyond that, think about what being a tax collector entailed. There were number crunchers. You don't run into a lot of successful accountants who say, well, yeah, I, I don't know, I, don't know. I think that bill was uh, 
somewhere over $500. No, no, that bill is $555.95, and I'm going to put it in the right column and put it in the right ledger spot. They're detailed. They have to be by training. And tax collectors not only would have been detailed in their ability to track numbers and keep records, but they had to know everybody. I don't know how they divided up how many had how many and where they were at. We had to have names and you had to know faces and you had to have details about people and what kind of trade they were in and what maybe they could pay. And he's a detailed, disciplined record keeper. Perfect for what the Gospel of Matthew does. Now, connect that to Matthew 13, the parables of the kingdom we just studied. And now to Matthew 24 and 25, which is the next big chunk of prophecy Jesus gives us. Prophetic details are incredibly crucial to understanding prophecy. Here's what I want to say to you. I could probably say it more eloquently than I'm going to be able to say it. But God has a plan, a purpose, a unique place for each of us in the body of Christ. And he creates us that way. God told David, I formed you in the womb. So the same thing basically with Jeremiah. God creates us with the right temperament, personality, talents and abilities that he needs to use us in the way and in the place and in the circumstance that he wants to use us in life. And I feel like there's a lot of Christians that feel like, well, I'm just kind of reserved and I'm not very good at speaking, and I'm not a teacher, and I, I'm not good with people, I don't do it. God has a place that is highly significant for you in the body of Christ. Let's talk about the context. The Olivet Discourse takes place during Passover week, on Wednesday. When I say Passover week, you understand that's also Passion Week. It's the last week of Jesus' life. This is two days, what we read in Matthew 24 and 25, two days before the crucifixion. Right, less than two days, the hour they was. And obviously the theme of the discourse is the second coming of Christ, or the Messiah, at the end of the age, and the establishment of his kingdom. This section of scripture, Matthew 24 and 25, is one of those sections of scripture that is so misinterpreted by so many people and has been over so many years there's just a lot of confusion about it a lot of misinterpretation a lot of that is going to clear up when we understand the jewish perspective that matthew brings to the table here and that, that the gospel of matthew unfolds for us it's just like when we were looking at the parables of the kingdom, you have to remember, don't make a parable walk on all fours. 
We come to Matthew 24 25. You can't look at it from our perspective. The church today, and people go back and they read it and they read stuff into it. And that confuses a lot of issues. Okay, here's our outline. We're only going to look at three verses. So somebody volunteered to read three verses because your teacher walked off and left his Bible where they could hold Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him and called called his attention to his building. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. But Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So, they're leaving the temple, they're walking out the door, the disciples point out the wonderful architecture of the temple, the next thing we know, Jesus is saying, the temple's going to be destroyed, and then that leads to the questions as they get to the Mount of Olives, what's going on? Now, I want you all to just kind of take a look at that, get a fix in your mind, it will be on the screen here for us as well. But, uh, they're departing from the temple. They're going back to Bethany. They were staying outside of Jerusalem, in Bethany, about six miles away or so. And probably at Mary and Martha's house in Lazarus. So they're on their way back. The end of the day, late in the afternoon. The question then, or I should say the discussion of the temple comes up because one of the disciples, actually more than one, were probably marveling at the temple which is an incredible architectural um, what do you call it? edifice or whatever to look at, see. I mean, they had stones that like thousands and thousands of just humongous stones that were moved in there. And it, was a, it was a pretty uh, majestic thing to look at. And you got to realize, they would seen it before. They'd been to Jerusalem before. They weren't a bunch of hayseeds. This is the first time they saw the big city. But it is still impressive. But there was something lurking in the back of their mind that brought out this observation, which is where we want to get to today. Then there's those two related questions we just read in verse 3 that follow over on the Mount of Olives. So Jesus came out of the temple, was going away, and his disciples came up to a point out of when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him, like, like Jesus hadn't seen them before, there's something prompting this. And he just smashes whatever it was they were getting. I think he knew. He just brings it tumbling down. He says, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Well, that kind of deflates your excitement. If you're connecting something significant with the temple, which they were. Here again is the Temple Mount. Today, this is the modern city skyline here in the background. Here's the eastern wall. By the way, that wall was not there in Jesus' day. It was a separate, different wall. That, this wall was built by the Crusaders many years later. 
but it's in the same place. And the Eastern Gate, you'll see it right there, it's, it's all blocked up. It's, it's, you, can't, you can't enter, it doesn't, it doesn't have a gate anymore. That was done in the uh, days of the Crusaders too for defensive purposes. The temple would have stood right in here. So here's a model of the temple. Doesn't really do service to the magnificence of it. But this is what's called the second temple. The first temple was built by Solomon. It was destroyed by the Babylonians when they when the Jews were taken into the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. When they came back, 70 years later, the days of Ezra, they rebuilt the temple. Remember in those days when they built the foundation of the temple, you go back to the book of Ezra, the young men were rejoicing and the old men were weeping. Because the new temple did not hold a candle to Solomon's temple in size and majesty and all the rest. But the young people, they never saw Solomon's temple, so it was they were rejoicing. That second temple was expanded, uh, improved, uh, revitalized by Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was half Jew. He was uh, a Roman dictator in the area over the, the Jews. And Herod was a great builder. He loved to build things. Leave that building legacy. And one of the things he did was the Jewish temple. So it's still the same temple, but it's been made more magnificent. Uh, that's the second temple. Now I took out the Dome of the Rock, kind of crudely, but I blocked it out. And I inserted in our picture of our model over here to show you where the temple would be. Here's what's left of it. These stones are the remains of that temple structure. And there's not a one that has not been separated from the other. This can be seen over in Jerusalem today. They are not up here on the mountain. They're kind of over off the back side or somewhere, I think. What happened? Exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Not one stone would be left that was not torn down from off the other. In A.D. 70, about 36, 37 years later, dating from the point when Jesus said the temple would be destroyed, the Roman legions under General Titus came into Jerusalem, slaughtered the inhabitants, took the city, set the temple on fire. Now stones don't burn, as we all know, but there was much wood inside the temple that did burn. And much of that was overlaid with gold. And the gold, gold film, whatever, call it overlay, melted, ran down between the cracks of the stones, and they literally separated every stone from the other in all the loot they could get, put in their pockets. That happened in A.D. 70, I guess like 36, 37 year time frame later from what Jesus had just told the disciples was going to happen. 
And most of them saw that or witnessed it or, or knew of it because it would have been in their lifetime. The Jews that escaped Jerusalem fled down the Jericho Road to Jericho and then turned south and went to a place, another place that Herod the Great had built, a mountaintop fortress known as the Sodom. This is high up. As you can see, here's the valley, there's the Dead Sea in the backgrounds, and uh, the fortifications. What Jewish warriors and people survived and could go, they went and they went to Masada and they barricaded themselves in. Well, Titus came to Masada. Took him months and months, I should have looked up how many, but it took months for the Romans to bring in enough earthworks and siege works to be able to somehow get up over all that. When they did, they found every inhabitant in Masada dead. They had taken their own lives rather than fall into the hands of the Romans. I've been told, and I've not been able to document this, but I've been told that even to this day, new recruits to the Israeli army are taken to Masada as a reminder. And they take some kind of a pledge like never again, you know, we're going to give up, whatever. This all happened just as Jesus told the disciples it was going to happen. So now after that has taken place, and this is running through their heads, they go out the city gate, down the valley, up the Mount of Olives, they're sitting there, and here comes the question. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? There's two questions here. Some people say three, because it says what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. But the sign of the coming was the end of the age. I think it's two questions. But it's a when question and a what question. Now the when question goes right back to the temple. Verse, verse 2, the previous verse, said not a stone's going to be left standing. Don't you understand that? And now they're saying, well, when's that going to happen? Jesus does not answer that question. He could have said 33 years, or 36 years, right? He could have said a little while. Just, he just doesn't answer it. Now next week, we're going to find out why he didn't answer it. But why were they so interested in what was going to happen in the temple? Two days earlier, Jesus came into Jerusalem on the back of a colt, the triumphal entries, and the, the crowds threw down the palm branches in their garments and said, Hosanna, the Lord has come. The Messiah has come. That was the common man one. That wasn't the Jewish nation, it wasn't the leaders. He didn't come on a white horse of triumph. He came in a humble way. But his disciples are thinking, okay, he's come, he's been recognized by so many as the, as the Messiah, and now we know the Messiah is going to rule from Jerusalem and probably from the temple. This is all, they're excited about all this. They're, 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 they're brimming over with, it's, we're just a few days away from the Messiah defeating the Romans and setting up his kingdom, and we're all going to be part of it. 
Judas had kind of got disillusioned with that, of course, but the true believer anyway. The other disciples, man, they had a long way to fall from that precipice of excitement in the next couple of days. Because they didn't understand something. <clears throat> So Jesus doesn't answer the when question because they already had the answer. And we're going to see why they should have had the answer next week. The what question he deals with in chapters 24 and 25. These questions are kind of like, I was thinking about this. When the doctor finally came in this week and said, we need to get your gallbladder out right away, but don't do it soon. We'll just have to put a tube in there and you'll have to just tolerate it and drain the infection. It'll be a mess. I said, well, I said, well, get me in as quick as possible. This is after three days of chasing rabbits. And uh, he said, okay, I'll call the operating room. He got me in in like two hours, which is phenomenal. But it was Saturday. There wasn't like a, a big crowd down there waiting. <coughs> but in the process, he said, I'm going to use a robotic-assisted Procedure. So my next question was, that sounds good, I'm fine with that, but do you think insurance is going to, be, going to cover the robotic assisted part? I mean, I always ask questions like that because I've had so many times over the years the insurance never paid what they said they would. And he looks at me and he says, you know, he looks at me and doesn't say anything for about 10 seconds, he just looks at me and goes, that question is so wrong on so many levels. <laughs> I said, okay. And then he went on to explain. He said, you know, you've been in the hospital three days, they've done all these tests, they've covered all the things, we finally found out what's wrong with it. He said, they're sure they're going to cover it and fix it. Okay. I said, fine. That sounds good to me. Hope you're right. <laughs> but I can imagine Jesus in his mind thinking right at this point to his disciples. You guys, your question is so wrong. <laughs> Here's why it was wrong. Here's the Old Testament view of eschatology. Now the word eschatology is just a theological word which means the study of last things or the study of prophetic things at the end of time. Eschatology, last things. Jewish eschatology just thought of, well, Jews are just going to go along and a lot of, a lot of years are going to transpire. Then there's going to come this terrible period of time in which we're going to suffer greatly. And they even referred to it, or at least I see other people refer to it as the tribulation. I think that might be what they called it. And this is all correct from Scripture to a degree. Well, they considered the Roman occupation to be this tribulation. So now, not only are they thinking, time is short, the Messiah is about to come, but, but there's been John the Baptist, and then there's Jesus, and the miracles, and, and everybody, except for the real true leaders of the nation, are in that mode of excitement. It's all going to, it's all going to come together here. That's where his disciples were at. And so their, their scheme, if you tell you had a prophetic chart in those days, it'd just be, they'll go along for a long time here, Old Testament period, then all of a sudden there'll be a time of tribulation, and then the Messiah's going to come. <clears throat> Throw 
throw off all of our enemies and bring the kingdom in and we're going to have a great time of peace. Now, obviously, that's not correct. Here's the chart we know is correct. We have the first coming of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, his ascension, the church age, the rapture of the church, which isn't a coming clear to earth, but he comes in the clouds and then snatches up the saints. Then we have the tribulation period, the two halves of it. And, uh, and by the way, Matthew 24 25 is going to concentrate right here. And then he comes back at the end of that and deals with all the enemies of God and sets up the millennium. But the Jews miss all of this. Their eschatology ended here and jumped over here. Now, for, for every hint of any New Testament church age detail or uh, prophecy in the Old Testament, there's thousands about the kingdom. See, so in a way, they are, this is natural. I mean, it was everybody the priests, the Levites, the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, all the rest. This is what was in their head. They missed all of this. And that's why the, the questions of the disciple were what they were. And they shouldn't have been. But they did not understand. Okay, a couple applications and we'll be done here. First thing I've already mentioned, God has a significant plan and purpose for every disciple's life. Some of us are going to be sort of like Matthew, kind of nondescript in the background, nobody takes much notice of you. That doesn't mean that you don't have an extremely significant part to play within the body of Christ. There's probably way more Matthews here than there are Peters in this room. Don't you think? Peter, he was always the forefront, taking the leadership, expressing his feelings, his thoughts, and asking questions and, and goofing things up. And Matthew's the guy standing in the background too. <laughs> I'm not going to open my mouth. <laughs> Something happened to Peter. <laughs> Peter is a great, wonderful apostle, become a great, uh, a great leader of the early church. Matthew, what he did was great too. And the other thing that comes in my mind. And somebody look up 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4, read it to us. Who's got it? Okay, go ahead. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you are not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. 
For, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? This is describes the disciples perfectly. They were carnal. Remember, they always argue who's going to sit at the right hand, who's going to be at the left, who's going to, you know, who's going to be the greatest, the king. Is. They were still babes spiritually. Even though they've been with Jesus three years, he's dealing with people that can't absorb all that he can give them at one time. That's why they are still so clueless about so many things when they get put down to the end. You feed a child when a child can eat when they're an infant. But as they grow, you increase the complexity and the substance of their diet, right? It's a spiritual principle. Many of you have been Christians for a long time, so you graduated out of those early days, but you're, <clears throat> you're around other Christians who have not. You have to be patient, not impatient because they don't understand. You have to be gentle and discipling them. And then when you get right down to it, all of us, we still have those traces of immaturity in our own life. We've got to be a little bit patient with ourselves. You ever get frustrated? I just can't, I can't figure this out. I can't understand this. And be patient. It'll come. God's infinitely patient with us in our growth, our maturity. And uh, the thing about it is, unless we are purposefully disobeying him, we're right on his schedule. We're right where we're supposed to be. Be patient with the process. Well, that's kind of an introduction, I guess. A little bit of devotional thoughts myself next day. But it's been enjoyable, and uh, I look forward to getting on into the actual prophecy starting next week. Those of you who've recently studied Revelation, you go back and read beginning in chapter 6, which is in, 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 in my words don't want to come out right today. Specifically, the first part of chapter 6. Revelation seals. Hmm? Revelation Revelation chapter 6, uh, the seal judgments, just in preparation for next week. Because what you're going to, if you want to read in Matthew 24 next week, what you're going to see is the seal judgments, Revelation 6 and Matthew 24, come together. Anybody have any comments? Uh, you don't have to be a, a Matthew and... Keep it to yourself. <laughs> yes. You said that um, previously Matthew he admired Jesus way before he even knew him. I apologize. The other thing I forgot, I left my Bible at home, I left my phone at home, so I can't turn my hearing aids up. My wife asked me about it too. You sure you recovered your mind?
scripture doesn't say that, but I think it's a provable point for Peter and Andrew over John 1, so I think it's probably the same with Matthew. He probably, I mean, Jesus was too well known in the area, and the crowds were all, everybody was going to see him, so I figured he had been there. I mean, that's just a logical assumption. But it's not, you know, some of these things we point out, you know, when we kind of look at the situation, it's not, you should take it as a, probably, could have been. But he showed great Absolutely. Uh, the tax collectors would have been, on their own reconnaissance, how they wanted to work, and probably had certain days. Could have easily traveled around. He could have been following Jesus and had faith for some time. So he certainly indicates he had faith. I mean, to, to see somebody you've never seen before walk up and say, Come follow me, I think, I'm not saying that's impossible, but he wouldn't have gotten that revelation in the moment. It's probably, he knew who Jesus was when Jesus walked up that day. When Jesus said that, he responded uh, because of his faith. Does that help? Okay. Dan, I was just curious about the teachers of the day calling when they had disciples, like saying you're a great heresy teacher. Did they call people to follow? Was that just kind of culture? That, that was the way they educated yeah. uh, the next generation. Maybe that wasn't so uncommon for. Jesus to come by called somebody. It wasn't uncommon for them to have groups of scholars that gathered around rabbis. Uh, there was even men that gathered around John the Baptist, I think. Um, there was something, I think, unique about what Jesus did. Uh, he called him a much higher level of discipleship, commitment. But that was something common in the culture. Today we just put people in schools, you know, assign person to a teacher. They, but you go back to colonial days in America, most of the higher education was done that way. You, they would have a tutor or a, you know, a person that brought them along, more than just going to school and going to different classes with different teachers. Wasn't it more that they chose the teacher though, instead of the other way around? Wasn't that kind of people Would they have chosen the teacher? Like. Yeah, like I, I really want to follow this rabbi. So, I mean, would a rabbi have gone around and called particular students? I don't perceive that the rabbi would go around and call students so much because they they had a reputation and everybody wanted their child to be there probably, and it's probably a connections thing. But I think Jesus, you think about it, he goes off and calls fishermen and tax collectors. Mm -hmm. These people that he called were not, they would have never even thought about him in that role. But he could see beyond, you know, their class and status. So I think there's probably something, in my mind, I would think there's something unique about his calling. I doubt if a famous rabbi would have showed up in Galilee and said to somebody, follow me, and just give them not That's my guess. But they probably would have a lot of applications. So I want to pursue that. A lot of these things I'm just giving you my perspective, okay? I'm, 
I'm not an expert on all these areas. But uh, these are good things to think about because there's so much more. Anything you read in the Gospels is not there. It's a part of the whole equation. And that's why we, when we study Matthew, you've got to look at Mark and Luke and John and bring in all the information. Anybody else have a comment? Yeah, is it possible that Matthew actually was a Levite? Wouldn't that be why he was himself a Levite? And also give background to why he knows so much about the Old Testament? I wondered the same thing because of the term Levi. It could be, but I can't find any evidence for it. I mean, otherwise, other than that name. But that would help explain why he knew so much, perhaps. So it's a, it's a very interesting thought. But how does, a, how does someone get from being a Levite to being a tax collector? I mean, that's a big jump in the wrong direction. But it's not impossible. Like, it just doesn't went that way. One thing we know, he knew a lot about the Bible, he knew a lot about the Old Testament, he was a scholar, and he was a tax collector. That's what we know. But weren't the tax collectors uh, picked by the uh, Romans? So, Romans said, you're going to be a tax collector, thank you very much. You don't have the option of saying, I don't want to do it. I haven't really thought about that, but that, that's probably true. And obviously, he had to know how to read and write, which most Jews probably didn't in that day, unless they were a scholar. I just said he obviously had to have known how to read and write, which most Jews of that day would not have known how, unless they were scholars. Well, unless they were taught home or they did with a scholar or something. So, any guesses on how he got out of his tax collecting duties? <laughs> I got a guess. I don't know if it's right, but my guess is there's a whole lot of people wanting that job. <laughs> it was very lucrative. There's a lot of people willing to give up their people to have the money. It's like any day, maybe. But it evidently doesn't seem to be like if I quit, the Romans are going to kill me. Maybe, maybe that was because they didn't really have a shortage of applicants. I was thinking too, like the Babylonians picked the best, like Daniel and his friends. So the Romans would probably do the same too. They would pick the best and say, you have no choice, you're going to do this. That's possible, yeah. I mean, maybe the Romans picked someone like Matthew because he was intelligent. He was uh, detailed and he knew everybody in that area. I'm just probably all those factors involved. I doubt it. I, you know, it doesn't make sense that they just knock on someone's door and say, you're going to get taxed. So they probably had their ways to figure out who should do it or who would do it. All right, I think we're about out of time. Anybody have one last comment?